<laughs> so hi hi it's our time now i live in north carolina you live in austin how does that work for you I want to see you again. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a very special guest today for this special episode. Her name is Radhika Natarajan, and she's a professor at Reed. But more importantly, she is my friend from college. So we go back about 20 <laughs> years, more than that, more than 20 years. Um, hello, Radhika. Welcome. Hi, Tammy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited to have you here. Um, The original occasion was your general brilliance on topics of colonialism, multiculturalism, and all things Portland, where you're based. But we also wanted to talk a little bit about Indian matchmaking, so I have racially profiled you for this episode. Thank you. I'm so happy to be your Indian friend um, in this moment. Horrible when tokenism <laughs> actually works. <laughs> so, where to begin? Um, I, I thought we could start a little bit with your work. Um, so, you are a historian, um, mm-hmm. yeah. trained on in many methods and many topics, but um, I think you primarily refer to yourself as a historian of Imperial Britain. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. want to say a little bit about what you've been working on? Yeah, so um, my uh, I study the British Empire, and I especially study the ways that the British Empire was remade in Britain itself in the years of decolonization. So while I mm. teach classes in the broad scope and reach of the British Empire, um, my research specifically focuses on migration to Britain from the decolonizing empire and the ways that those migrants um, were imagined in relationship to the welfare state, social rights, and citizenship. Um, mm. And so thinking about encounters between migrants and social workers as they worked through um, like questions of social rights, access to welfare and belonging. And basically in that research, I found that a lot of what we come to know as multiculturalism of the recognition of cultural communities comes out of those social work conversations as social workers attempt to understand the kinds of services that migrants need. And so you see like through... um, those interactions, the fracturing of um, um, an idea of universal social provision Mm -hmm. and the beginnings of kind of cultural accommodation or these different cultural explanations of what migrants um, need in terms of social services. Oh, wow. So I'm familiar with, you know, what you need in terms of citizenship status to get benefits here in the U.S., but what were the requirements there? What did it mean to be, you know, qualified to receive benefits? So um, historically in the British Empire, there was this idea that everyone in the empire was a subject of the crown and thus supposedly equal in status. Mm-hmm. But of course, that was not true in practice. Um, and so in 1948, the British government passed the British Nationality Act, which technically extended common citizenship to everyone in the British Empire. So not only people in Britain, but also people in um, the former dominions like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, but also in um, the dependent colonies like Jamaica, Trinidad, and the Caribbean and other mm. places mm-hmm. um, around the world. And so that formal equality of citizenship, Commonwealth citizenship, meant that anyone from the empire who arrived in Britain automatically had full standing as a citizen. They had the right to a job on the same terms as Native Britons. They had the right to welfare. Um, They had the right to vote. Um, Mm. They were equal in status. And so a lot of these conversations of welfare 
um, are about the ways um, that equal status is never equal um, right. and the kinds of discrimination <laughs> that people from um, the empire faced and the ways that it was social workers and the welfare state that were trying to um, ameliorate um, the excesses of, of racism. Hmm. And here we have a story about how when certain people, namely non-white people, started wanting to receive things, uh, there was suddenly an austerity politics. (laughs) And I'm wondering if there's any connection between that decolonizing moment and then what we later saw with Thatcher and the Tories today. Um, I think that that's absolutely connected. And so in Britain, that kind of um, backlash against the welfare state um, stars with the, like, coincides, I would say, with um, the rise of um, a more, what do I want to say, vocal like black mm. politics that is critiquing wow. uh, racism, but it's also coinciding with um, a recognition of the ways in which the welfare state have not ameliorated poverty or social distinction even among um, white Britons, and I so see. it's really about about the ways in which um, or the. Mm, the specificity of the discourse in Britain, I would say, is about the ways in which the welfare state might be helping, like these new immigrants, people of color, at the expense of like the traditional white working class, because um, mm. it feels like no one is getting ahead um, in seventies Britain. Wow. And what did what what was like Asian welfareism, or you know, was there also like a, a non-black, non-white? Um, you know, protest movement or organizing around benefits? Um, So a lot of the times it's not around, uh, it's not about organizing around benefits, often the most um, sort of vibrant um, political movements that are coming from Asian communities in Britain, and by Asian, I mostly mean South Asian, and even (laughs) more specifically Pakistani and Bangladeshi, because those Mm -hmm. are um, the largest groups in Britain at this time. And in Britain, Asian refers mostly to people from South Asia. Um, A lot of it is um, young people protesting uh, police brutality and um, Mm. you know, surveillance uh, um, in their communities. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So that seems obviously very relevant to this present moment. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about meanings of Asian-ness and also these sort of formations of people of color, et cetera, in this moment. So do you want to just expand on what you were saying about who is Asian, quote-unquote Asian, in Britain, and this term BAME, B-A-M-E, that we've heard some somewhat about over the past few months? Yeah, so uh, something else that I'd love to say briefly is that there was... Um, Black and Asian solidarity movements, and they often organized under the banner of black, and mm. as in black is a political color because yes. of the shared experience of racism, empire, and oppression in Britain. So there's a lot of people who use the term black in Britain in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s who mean oh, wow. all people of color um, because of their sort of shared experience of um, racial oppression. Mm. But um, today, there's actually a lot of discussion about disaggregating um, the term BAME because black and minority ethnic, and most people don't say BAME 
It's written big yeah, in all capital say? letters, but it's but it's black and minority ethnic. Um, so they say it all out. That's my understanding because <laughs> okay. a lot of people I think laugh at the term "bame," um, like when people <laughs> say it. But you know, I'm here in Portland trying to follow conversations in the UK. Um, um, but that's that's my understanding. But you know, similarly to the ways. Um, that POC sometimes hides more than it makes clear. Um, people in Britain have really critiqued the category black and minority ethnic because mm-hmm. the experience of black people in Britain, people of African descent, is not the same um, as yeah. the experience of people of Asian descent, for instance, um, in Britain, especially um, in conversations around higher ed and who has uh-huh. access to college educations. Um, so, you know, when people are using the term black and minority ethnic and pointing to um, Asian students, whether they're first generation or third generation, but, you know, that covers for the complete lack of people Mm -hmm. of African descent at every level of UK higher ed. So I think that we're seeing a lot of conversations about what that term can and can't do. um, Yeah. Yeah. To recognize the different position of different groups. In this particular protest moment, especially since you're in Portland, where the protests are still so raucous, And, you know, at a place like Reed, which has its own very specific politics, if people haven't followed the news, um, what do those what do conversations look like with your students when you're talking about, you know, these colonial histories and then kind of bringing those multicultural questions home to the to the U.S. and to this present moment? I think that it's really important um, to understand that Reed is a predominantly white institution, you know, a PWI, Mm -hmm. um, and um, that that has shaped much of its history. So what I see among students of color um, is a real attempt to understand how to organize together while Mm -hmm. maintaining a sense of distinction um, of different people's place and experiences. Um, And so I don't think that you know, my experience at Reed has shown me that there are easy answers to these questions. Um, certainly mm. not in terms of um, of thinking about who feels included and who feels excluded from certain conversations because of terminology. But do you you do sense that among students who are non-white, there is a solidarity politics or some sort of striving towards organizing together, or is there more of like okay? The black students will do their thing. The Latino students will do their thing. So I think Reed doesn't feel big enough to let different uh-huh. groups do their own thing. And <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I see students um, trying to organize together and to let um, certain movements like Black Lives Matter be led um, by black students um, and to create space for black students within a student of color kind of movement. Um, uh-huh. So um, I see students working through that a lot. Something that you and I have talked about when we're together in the Northwest is like the stereotype that oh Reed and Portland it's like all white like there's nothing else going on there like what do you feel like as a non-white brown Indian person when people say stuff like that 
I really don't appreciate that Portland <laughs> is so white comment because um, because there are people of color here and there have been people of color here, obviously, for so long. I feel like one of the most amazing things that I've just learned about in moving to Portland is like the history of the great migration in Portland and thinking mm. about like um, the longer history of African-Americans um, in this city and the state, like, you know, and learning about the history of um, Vanport, which was the city created by the Kaiser shipyards during World War II, which was flooded um, oh, wow. after the war. Mm. And it led to a displacement of these African-American families that had moved here after the war. But it was also a city that included Japanese American families and Chinese American families and Latino families. And so Mm -hmm. there are so, there's so much history here of um, communities of color. There's a huge important history of organizing by South Asians who arrived Mm. here in the early 20th century to work in canneries and also a little bit in agriculture and timber industries. Um, Like the Gather Party, which was like a revolutionary um, anti-colonial movement, was actually started in Astoria, Oregon. Um, Uh, It very quickly moved its center of (laughs) operations to the Bay Area, to Berkeley. But you know, that came out of this longer history of migration and, um, like, labor and political activism here in Oregon, too. Wow. But as you move through the world now in Portland, I mean, what does that feel like? Because it is, I mean, you can visit parts of Portland and be like, wow, there are only white people here. Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that describes my street. I've seen um, that street. I definitely feel that here. I think that, like, I think, though, I mean, it's a kind of a time of life thing, too. My world is so small, even before (laughs) the pandemic. Um, You can really make a lot of choices about who you see and who you spend time with. um, That changes the way some of that feels. Right. Yeah. And... The protests going on now, I think because of family and work and stuff, you haven't been going out at night, but what do you think about it? I mean, today is day 74 of the protests here. It's just wild, yeah. Um, And so um, the federal agents are still in town, but they're not the focus of the protests. Uh Um, It's the Portland Police Department, um, Portland Police Bureau, uh, who continues to use non-lethal munitions and um, chemical (laughs) irritants um, on the demonstrators. It's it's just so appalling how long we've let this violence continue against the demonstrators. And were you surprised about the outrage and outpouring in Portland? I um, wasn't necessarily. Um, So it's kind of related to um, that longer history of you know, black communities in Portland, too. I think that there are really longstanding um, black political organizations here in Mm -hmm. Portland, and they have been mobilized um, for a long time now. And if anything, what we're seeing here is the outcome of years, if not generations, of of organizing. I think this movement Mm -hmm. is built on that longer history. Mm -hmm. 
wanted to pivot a little and talk about um, how you got to this point, because I think some of our listeners are actually like younger Asian Americans, maybe people in high school or college who are kind of thinking about what sort of future they want and, you know, who might be getting exposed to left politics, we hope, because that's like our evangelical <laughs> motive in making the show. But um, so you, where did you grow up and why did you decide to become a historian? And was that something that your family didn't like? What's your deal, Radhika? I'm the wrong kind of doctor, Tammy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Finley, Ohio. I was born in Ohio. My parents moved here in the... Um, and my dad moved in 68 to go to college here for grad school, and my mom came when they had an arranged marriage. Um, oh. Yeah. Teaser. <laughs> yeah, in 1978. <laughs> um, and I grew up in the rural Midwest. I went to a small town and um, a county public school. And, um, you know, I don't—I would never have called myself— um, on the left. I probably didn't know what that meant. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, my house was solidly Democrat. I remember my mom, you know, in one of her first elections, it might have been Dukakis. Yeah, that was <laughs> the period I remember, too. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I think I was a little surprised that she wasn't voting for George H.W. Bush because he was the vice president. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. wouldn't you vote for the yeah, vice president? And she was like, no, I'm voting for Michael Dukakis. And she said to me, I could never vote for a Republican because they're racist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, Did you, had you guys talked about race before, racism? I don't really recall, but wow. I do recall her saying that, or that's the moment mm-hmm. that sort of crystallized. Um, oh yeah, yeah. For me, and she's not. She's like one of those Democrat voters who will turn out for every election and mm-hmm. will and will vote. Um, um, but you, but not very political, you know. Other, yeah. Other than that, um, wow. where did they come from? So my pa- family are from Tamil Nadu, um, which is in South India, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, they're kind of very typical of that generation of immigrants and that a big part of the reason that they were able to immigrate, like in the post-1965 moment, is that they mm-hmm. were coming um, for education because they had qualifications. Picking up on your parents' history, yeah. how did they have an arranged marriage? How did that work? Do you know about it? I know a little bit about it. My dad had come to the States for college, for graduate school, and I think that made him pretty eligible in a lot of ways <laughs> um, in Tamil Nadu. And bio I data. Don't, pardon? Bio Good bio data. data. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I don't know like the specifics more than my mom's dad, started looking for a husband for her and somehow my dad's name appeared and um it's like the couples at the like little intros of those episodes um yeah you know talking about meeting and then right. being like okay let's do this <laughs> and, 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 and it that, worked out and that was it yeah. <laughs> they got married <laughs> my two two of my older cousins actually had Korean matchmaking, like, in Korea. So how did Korean matchmaking work then? They, I mean, they're only, like, 10 years older than me. So, um, or maybe less than that, yeah. So um, I think their parents paid, their brothers, I think their parents paid 
a matchmaker in Seoul to just go through her book. And they, like, flew out to meet women. This is my understanding. I'm obviously not super close to them. Um, And they were based in the States. Yeah, they're Korean-American. Whoa. And And I think their Korean is much worse than mine. Um, But, you know, most, I think, men would be more comfortable marrying a Korean woman than the opposite. Um, (laughs) Meaning going across the sort of immigrant divide. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so they both ended up marrying, like, straight Korean women. Wow. So it's not just in the South Asian community, for sure. Yeah, well, my—everyone in my parents' generation had an arranged marriage in my Mm -hmm. family. And then I'd say of my cousins, it's been a lot—I'm actually at the—I'm the youngest cousin on my dad's side, so they're all, like, 10 to 20 years older than me. Oh, wow, yeah. And they all had arranged marriages, I think. Are they Indian American? No, or a did lot of they? them okay. are Indian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So did any of the Americans have arranged marriages? No. Okay. Mm-mm. Not in my family. Yeah. So this is still like an old world, new world split thing. I think it's an old world, new world <laughs> split. I do have friends who are um, like my age and immigrated to the U.S. either for school or grad school or for work. And some of them have had these, like, quasi-match-made um, yeah. relationships. Okay. But like, through I, community contacts, or did they straight-up pay a matchmaker? Community contacts. Um, so, like, I have a friend um, who met his wife through their grandmothers. Their grandmothers met at a wedding, and they were like, oh, we should introduce our grandchildren. Oh, wow. And it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I have heard a couple of those stories, but I don't know anyone my age or younger who's actually had an arranged marriage. Were you ever pressured into this or subjected to weird emails or calls that were arranged by your parents? Um, no, no. Um, um, no, my parents, though, definitely wanted me to get married. And I feel like after I had left college, that started became a that started becoming a topic that my mom especially would return to. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But they respected your boundaries, it sounds like. (laughs) Respected (laughs) your boundaries is such a... It's such a a white phrase. (laughs) Polite way of putting it. It's like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) I really related to Akshay in Indian matchmaking. You know, the way that he kind of shut down when his mom, like, brought up the topic... (laughs) <laughs> do you want to so okay now we're fully in Indian matchmaking land um, do you want to explain who Akshay is so um, uh, Akshay is a young uh, Mumbaiker a, a person who lives in Mumbai and he came to the US for college it sounds like for Boston, Boston. In, in Boston yeah. and then went back uh, to work at his family business in Mumbai and his mom Preeti I think has a plan and she had a plan <laughs> that both of her sons would be married between 23 and 25 so amazing so that amazing. woman is so frightening yes <laughs> and the other thing i think we have to mention is that they are an old school joint family that means it's the parents yeah living with their two grown sons and their older son's wife Buja. yeah 
why didn't they interview Pooja? Obviously, she is the person. Because she's a servant, and it doesn't matter what the hell she thinks. (laughs) Because Preeti even says that once Akshay gets married, like, the girl is now ours. Which is the same in Korean, for instance, like the direct translation of that woman is basic, or to to go marry is basically that you leave your house, that you you become another. Yeah. is, like, the verb for marriage, right? So, totally. yeah, I'm curious, like, I guess we should say a little bit of background about the show, although I don't know why anyone would listen to this if they hadn't actually seen the show. But <laughs> Indian Matchmaking is, of course, a Netflix series that has done very well. It's a reality show in which a woman named Seema, who always calls herself adorably Seema, I'm Seema from Mumbai, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, is... As far as I can tell, like a very influential, highly paid, sort of elite class based matchmaker who, in this show, for purposes of this show, is matchmaking across the US and in India, mostly in Mumbai. And the show has gotten all kinds of different criticism for its, you know, I guess, treatment of or failure to treat caste and colorism and other sorts of issues that are embedded in Indian society and in our society, too. Um, And also, you know, but it's also just kind of a trashy show. And then there are also, I, I think, actually, like moments of sort of, I guess, real, like, incisive commentary on what's going on in terms of the patriarchy and, you know, this structure. So I'm curious. I mean, there's so much to talk about, and I know this isn't necessarily your um, scholarly, you know, preoccupation, but what were just your, you know, sort of basic takeaways from the show when when you first watched it? I I mean, I think, first of all, It's a really well-made show in the sense that they are really carrying this narrative arc over (laughs) eight episodes, you know, and like the little arcs of each, um, each, uh, I don't, I want to call them characters, you know, but uh, but we're told they're real people Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, over the course of the, or over the course of the show, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it fits the mold of what we expect, like a reality. Yeah. Like, love yeah. show. It's, it's to be Romance, about. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I watched, I don't watch a lot of them, but I did watch Love is Blind earlier in oh. the pandemic. Okay. You're ahead of me. I have not seen this. And Love is Blind is so fascinating because it's the idea that you have to really commit to this other person. But in that show, it's that you have to, um, fall for their personality first to see if you want to move forward but you Mm -hmm. don't know anything except for what they've told you about their family about their work situation about Uh all those other aspects and it seems like the premise of matchmaking is that you kind of start with that big picture yeah and you kind of figure out like is this a person who has similar goals to me are their families similar to mine you know mm-hmm. do they want sort of these big picture things and then you try to see if there's a a personal connection mm-hmm. another thing i saw found so fascinating is the extent to which people on the show wanted love hmm and it seemed like there was a real difference between the us based um people on the show and the Indians in terms of their expectations for love or what that was. Say more about that. Um, Like, Akshay has never been in a relationship before. (laughs) Yeah. He, um, 
he doesn't know what to do. I don't know if he found this to be true. He keeps asking, and then I will know what to do. Or like he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't actually know how to interact with a person. Or I mean, like you know, someone who's not in his family. It seems like. Um, but you know, the people in the U.S. have had relationships. They, uh-huh. you know, they've. Um, one of them has been divorced. Um, others That's of them right, have yeah. been in long-term relationships. And and I think that their expectations in terms of the kind of connection they will have before they commit to the relationship is so different than it seems mm-hmm. like um, the folks in India. Interesting, yeah. And I think the characters... We basically only have two characters in Mumbai, I think. Two in Mumbai. And they're men. Yes. And then there's Ankita, who's in Delhi. Right. And Ankita in Delhi, who comes in later. And there's also something very gendered going on, obviously, because the two, I'll call them boys, because they seem like boys to me, but the two boys are from, like, extremely wealthy families. I mean, almost everyone on the show is quite wealthy. I think there's more variation on the U.S. side, but... Like the the in, the two Indian men are extremely wealthy and extremely coddled, I yes. would say, and just Absolutely. haven't really, you know, maybe there's a suggestion of some like playboyism, but also kind of innocent. I don't know. Yes. Um, yeah, I guess. What did you think about the the gender politics of the show? So I think that. Um, like, if you think of Ankita especially and mm-hmm. think about what's going on with her and the way that she is actually yeah. showing us the kinds of issues with gender she faces in wanting to be a, an independent entrepreneur. Um, yeah. So she lives with her parents and sister in Delhi, and she and her sister have just started a clothing company. Right. And she's really committed to being successful at her clothing business. And she talks about um, how she started maybe looking for a match four or five years before. Mm -hmm. And she kept getting told or her parents getting told that she's not attractive. Yeah. um, Or that she's not, you know, marriageable. And marriageable is a word that people in India use. (laughs) Um, and, And you really see her struggle with it. And... I think ultimately she decides to leave Seema and her services um, to focus on her business. Yeah, but what did you? What did? You, what was your takeaway from that particular story? Because I think we were supposed to leave the story thinking like, oh, she she found herself and she found what was truly important to her. But I found th- I found her storyline extremely disturbing actually because she submitted both to Seema's services and then to this life coach that Seema had procured, and I think in one side conversation they both talk about how Ankita is not pretty. Yes, they, they repeat this. They're yes. like she is not attractive, like straight up on the show, and you know, and then I guess she goes on one date. You know, that's arranged for her, but. It almost felt like the message was supposed to be, if you are a person like this, like, you can try, but, like, you should probably just focus on something else. Yeah, well, I think that um, I think that, that also relates to the experience of Rupa, the divorcee uh-huh. with the yeah. um, nine-year-old. I don't know how old her daughter is, but she yeah. has a daughter. And, and she's Sikh in Denver. Yeah, and... Um, 
SEMA is basically like, this will be very hard for me <laughs> um, to, 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 to find a partner for someone yeah. who's divorced and has a child and who's committed to being with either a Sikh man or a Punjabi Hindu who's like much right. more restricted in her idea of who she wants to be with. Right. Um, and I think that like what we're seeing is SEMA acts entirely in relationship to how successful she can be at making a match. Right. And so she That's knows. A good point. <laughs> yeah. She, like, you know, she meets Richa, the last um, contestant. Um, <laughs> Basically. Yeah, at the, at the end. In San Diego. And, yeah, and she's like, she's a 95 out of 100. So, like, all <laughs> so of her bizarre. mental calculations are about, you know, how marriageable is this person. Um, and we see, I think, with, like, Ankita how hard it is yeah. when you have these really rigid ideas of what makes for a good, um, not just partner, but a good wife um, yeah. in this context. So when you and I were exchanging links and kind of, you know, gossip about this show, like obviously there's lots of very salient and good critiques online about, you know, how this show evidences, I think in one bitch article, the phrase was Brahmaniacal fascism, you know, some very strong takes, which I think are, warranted. I mean, basically Seema almost on the regular talks about, oh, slim, fair, and, you know, the right cast. Like, these are, like, straight up things that are going on in the show. Um, But but to your your previous point, I think also we were talking about media depiction and kind of, like, this question of, like, okay, is this an accurate depiction? Like, it's not necessarily a favorable one, like, ethically speaking or morally speaking, but is this real? Does this actually reflect the reality of a certain group of Indians and Indian Americans? So what do you think about that? I mean, I think that that is a tough question to answer in a lot of ways, and especially, like, with the idea of what we want from a real depiction. Mm. Like, why do we want a real depiction from a reality TV show that is not <laughs> a documentary, you know? And I think that, like, I think that what this showing, this show shows us a lot of, um, like, angst in a lot of ways about, I think, an institution that's actually in a state of transformation. You know, I think that people don't know what marriage is or is for anymore in a lot of these, like, wealthier, um, like, Indian contexts. Because Mm. I would say, like, one thing about the show, this is not arranged marriage. Um, This is, like, a matchmaker setting up potential relationships in a much more open way than arranged marriages, which actually do happen you know, in India, where it is parents meeting and deciding um, mm-hmm. about who who their children will marry, um, and so I think we are we are seeing in a lot of ways, especially in the U.S. context, the way that class is more important than caste. The specificity of caste for a lot of um, yeah um, these couples. I noticed that a lot of the um, the matches or potential matches already had parents who were from different parts of India and who mm. probably already had um, marriages that were not arranged necessarily. Like mm. I noticed that um, Vyasar, uh, the first person that he met, Manisha, yeah. um, her mom was Punjabi and her dad was Bengali. That's right. So like already we're seeing... Um, people whose lives don't actually conform to that very rigid idea of intercaste marriage um, that we might, you know, think yeah. that we are also seeing in the show. 
And I think the executive producer of the show was saying something about that, that, you know, yes, some of the stuff is uncomfortable, but, you know, it's also exploring these changes and these fractures and how actually even the stuff that seems extremely rigid about these situations is is flexible in in some ways. Yeah, and I would not, like, um, discount um, the fact that all of the folks on the show are Hindu or Sikh. Yeah. And they are upper caste. And is certainly in the selection of people for the show. um, Right. Produces the idea of who is an Indian um, by excluding Dalits, by excluding um, working class um, um, South Asian Americans, for instance, mm-hmm. or um, excluding Muslims. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that is certainly valid um, and really important to talk about. But I also think it's showing a, another dynamic, which is maybe the ways in which um, being Indian means something different um, to like I thought the experiences of Nadia she's the one who's Guyanese American yeah, and she goes into all of these meetings anxious about these men not thinking she's Indian enough yeah that she was one of my favorite characters I think for that reason yeah and so I think that that is another aspect of Indian diaspora that the show is trying to um, right. engage with yeah. I mostly hated everyone on the show, though. I found them, like, terrible. Like, I can't remember the woman's name in Texas. Upperna. She was, the, she was, like, one of the worst people I've ever seen on TV. I don't know why she bothered me so much. Did you have feelings about her? Oh, man. I started out <laughs> being really annoyed with Upperna, and then I think I started feeling sorry for her. Why? I well, she's she, a lawyer in Texas. I know. What else do we have to say about lawyer. her? She's incredibly narcissistic. She, but she loves traveling. But it's a very consumerist travel. She's very, very finicky. Anyway, go on. Um, well, she was talking about her mom, Jothika, who is also so intense. Oh my god! Divorced. Yes, that part. Right. They were trying to gain some sympathy points there, Radhika. I feel like you fell for it. I I mean, <laughs> but you know what? They like Vyasar talks about this later with his divorced parents' story. It is still a really big deal to be divorced um, yeah. among Indian Americans, and um, and I think that that there was this moment where Vyasar was talking about like there is no pretension of respectability in relationship to my family. I mean, I feel like that that's, you know, because he was talking about his father's um, history with jail. And um, the fact that his mom was only a public school teacher and that that wouldn't look good to prospective families. And so so I think that that there's... Yeah, so I think that there's this way in which the show is also very kind of tentatively and gently getting at the respectability politics that is also behind so much of, like that desire for a good family for um, your your child and their yeah. marriage. Um, I wanted to ask you about colorism on the show because the first couple of times Seema or the other characters, including the last contestant, as you called her, who is otherwise kind of similar to, I guess, our generation of people, like very like, you know, just kind of like seemed like a normal California girl was like in the middle of her description of things. Oh, and like not too dark. Yeah. So this whole and you're yes. like, holy shit, I thought you were like a normal California, you know, and then yeah. you just come out with this. And that was repeated, like fair is good, not too dark. You know, you hear this again and again in every episode. And 
I was trying to think whether we would allow this in any other racial context to appear on a TV show that we all watch. Yeah. And I don't know if, I mean, obviously the kind of foreignness of India allows us to kind of engage and be like, oh, that's kind of different. But would we have a show about black people where we're like, not too dark, you know? I'm curious how that struck you, the discussions of complexion. It, it struck me as completely normal. Um, because I think being fair is such an important part of, you know, I can't, I can't generalize this too much, but I would definitely say for like middle class families, there's, you know, a real relationship, I think, and upper caste families, um, between being fair and being lovely. Um, there's Mm -hmm. actually an Indian beauty product called Fair and Lovely, which is a lightning cream. And because there's also, um, a lot of, um, political movement around this issue in India, they actually took uh-huh. the word fair out of their, I saw that. Uh, but they're still, it's the same thing. <laughs> yes, it's just not called fair. <laughs> um, so I think that that was one of that. For me, that was like um, the aspect of these matchmaking that felt the most unengaged with um, that really mm-hmm. deserved a little bit more attention. Like, I think that, you know, if you think about Ankita and why wasn't she considered pretty, she seems pretty to me, you know, she yeah. seems like a really attractive person. Like, where is this coming mm-hmm. from? Um, because I think that the show isn't giving us enough to like make sense of where this is coming from. But, you know, uh-huh. like those other two Indian, um, uh, the boys uh, yeah. from Mumbai, <laughs> they are so fair and yeah. I think that that's such an important part in what both of them and their families are looking for. Um, Definitely. And their partners. Yeah. Yeah. And the really picky jewelry dealer boy basically literally ends up with a white-skinned model on a horse. Yes. <laughs> that was sort of yes. metaphor gone awry somehow in that Yeah, show. for all of his protestations of not being, you know, superficial yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> No, that was absurd. Yeah. Um, so do you do you think on the whole it's it's good that this is getting exposure and that people are having are, are people having the right kinds of conversations in response? Like is this productive? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and also a really tricky question because this is being seen both in the US and in India. Mm-hmm. And I think that what that conversation looks like in the two places might be different. And I think that, you know, this show coming out, um, you know, in a moment of renewed, um, like, Hindu-Muslim conflict in India. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, laid the... um, the cornerstone or whatever you called it, the foundation stone of a new temple to Ram that's supposed to be built in Ayodhya last week. And this is like such a um, contested site. Um, It was a site in Mm -hmm. which Hindu mobs tore down um, a a mosque, the Babri Masjid in 1992, um, which was really kind of the first moment in... um, a longer period of, of Hindu-Muslim violence that we've seen in mm-hmm. India that, it, that is ongoing. So I think that a lot of the backlash in India and there's like a renewed Dalit politics in India yeah. um, in the last... Since Amazing. The, yeah, and so I think that the backlash to the show that we've seen there... Um, 
is is a really important part of the of mm. the critical project, like against the Modi government. Um, yeah, and who's built about, his entire career on hurting Muslim communities? In India. Yeah, he was the uh, chief minister of Gujarat, um, like in the two thousands, I want to say, until he became uh, prime minister. Yeah. But in two thousand and two, there was a huge anti-Muslim pogrom, basically, that was stoked right. by the Gujarati government by Narendra Modi. Yeah. Um, and so, the basis of his rise to power has been stoking Hindu um, resentment against Muslims and about like a restoring, um, um, like a Hindu polity, mm-hmm. basically in India. And there's been some good reporting on this during the Trump administration, but, you know, that connects to what's going on here, too, among the diaspora, right? Because you have right-wing Hindu supporters of Modi, basically, in very wealthy centers of the Indian diaspora throughout the United States supporting Trump and supporting right-wing politicians in their localities. So this is a global politics so absolutely, and a lot of um, the BJP, Modi's party, has support in the U.S. So mm-hmm. um, there is definitely a transnational Hindutva circuit that is supporting yeah. um, right-wing fascism in both countries. Um, and like you know, I think um, in a similar way, you were talking on your show about what's going on with Asian American kids writing to their parents. <laughs> yeah. I think that, like, for some, like, Indian American kids, like, shows like this might also create an opening for mm. talking with their parents um, about um, um, about some of these issues within uh, Indian communities, um, especially, like, the, po- the political consequences. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of the criticism of the show that we're seeing from Indian Americans is coming out of this moment and this... Um, um, the the Black Lives Matter um, movement yeah. and like how are um, non-white other non-black people of color in the <laughs> U.S. being allies or thinking about their place in a U.S. racial system. So, you know, I definitely read a lot of um, the criticisms of the show to be coming out of those politics mm-hmm. and thinking about what role a show like this might play Um in an oppositional politics in this moment. But another part of me thinks that it's really important to not flatten what we think of as good representation, Hmm. um, to only mean, you know, right on representation, or that's what Stuart Hall, the um, cultural theorist called it, um, cheering fictions or right Hmm. on representations. um, Those representations that make us feel good about our communities or about our identity that affirm them in some way. Um, Sometimes the messy stuff um, that show the complications can also be productive too. And I think Hmm. speak to um, some of these larger political questions. What was the context in which Stuart Hall was making that argument? So Stuart Hall wrote this amazing essay called New Ethnicities that I recommend to anyone. And it was written in the 80s and during the Thatcher years. Mm-hmm. And it was um, thinking about a shift in what he saw as the representation of black Britons from a representation that was really focused on um, those right on politics um, or those cheering fictions that are about like striving mm-hmm. against adversity, overcoming the odds, um, representing kind of heroes in a lot of ways to the ones that featured 
more complicated and messy figures, um, ones that were really imbricated in questions of class, in status, and race um, in 1980s Britain. So one of the key points in in that essay was thinking about um, My Beautiful Laundrette, Hmm. Have you ever seen this movie? I haven't seen it. I know of it. Yeah. Do it's, you want to say a bit about it? Yeah, it's so good. Um, and it focuses on a young Pakistani-British man who takes over a laundrette for his uncle, who's like a businessman and owns like a car dealer, like a car garage and other businesses in Thatcher's Britain and is totally pro-Thatcher. And <laughs> because of the opportunities for entrepreneurialism and Wow, yeah. <laughs> and he... Um, it's a queer story because he reconnects with Johnny, wow. who was one of his friends from high school, and they renew or begin a relationship and take care of the laundrette together. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But also it's revealed yeah. that Johnny participated in National Front marches, like with um, fascists in Britain. Wow. Yeah. So it's a really complicated, messy oh story, and there aren't really—it's not about identifying necessarily with a character or feeling, mm-hmm. you know, proud um, of what you see represented, but I think it's really engaging with um, these hard questions about race and class and, you know, even love or affinity or friendship, too, um, well, under these yeah. conditions. And so Stuart Hall was just trying to say— you know, I I don't only want work that affirm or artwork or cultural productions that affirm a positive sense I have in my community. I also mm-hmm. we also need basically these kinds of um, representations that actually bring to light and can upset um, right. what we take for grant what we take for granted about um, you know these experiences. I think. It's really helpful, and that also obviously calls for a certain numerosity because if you you need to have a bunch of depictions in order to have the good ones and the bad ones. I think that's a real problem. I mean, basically, South Asian representation has been driven by Mindy Kaling in the past <laughs> however many years in the yeah. U.S., it feels like. Um, and I think that, you know, we're never going to have um, or be able to fully engage with um, the complexity of South Asian American experience without more representation. Do you like Aziz Ansari's show? Um, Master of None? hmm I did think that was charming. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but you know the. But I thought a really good critique of that show, and also um, the Kumail Nanjiani oh, right. movie, yeah. was that we see these South Asian men, and then in Mindy Kaling's work, South Asian women with white women. Mm-hmm. You don't end up with white women and white men, white, white partners. Men, yeah. And Indian matchmaking is actually showing us something right. different in that way. Um, and so we might think about well, what's that doing within these other sort of white frames of media representation. Yeah, I did think that was interesting. You had sent me a New York Times op-ed that sort of made that point that is, you know, sure, there are all these things you could say about it, but it's also interesting to explore a universe in which kind of South Asianness is sort of enough or, you know, kind of complements itself. Yeah. You know, in a romantic situation. I thought that yeah. was... I have one more question for you for now on this topic, which is, you know, Isabel Wilkerson has this new book on Cased mm. Out. So a lot of people are talking about Cased, and I haven't read it yet. I mean, I take it from all of the reviews and the essays she published in the Times Magazine that 
one of the principal arguments is to sort of, you know, she's not drawing strict equivalences, but to draw some analogies between the black American experience and Indian caste and Nazi Germany. Any thoughts on on her book and, and sort of this and how it, you know, ties into our conversation? So I have not read the book, um, but what I have read about it is really interesting to me because there were a lot of, and I think she talks about this in this book, African-American sociologists in the early 20th century who were really interested in the caste system. And so you see a lot of connections actually between anti-colonial South Asian organizing and African-American, like very, very early civil rights movement stuff that's growing out of um, what's happening in the 1920s and 30s even, and thinking about is there a correlation between caste mm. in um, in India and like the racial stratification of the Jim Crow era United yeah. States, basically. So that's something I'm really excited to know more about. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that I've learned about caste, though, um, as a historian and as someone who teaches it, is that we have to understand that caste has always been open to politics and historical change. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way in which some of the critiques of caste, and I'm not saying this is Wilkerson, but I'm saying some of the ways I've I've heard about it, Uh presents caste as unchanging. Um, It takes that Brahmin narrative, which was also a British Mm. colonial narrative, that caste is this unchanging, timeless system in which Brahmins have always been at the top, and then there's the stratification that is universally applied throughout India, and it takes it for granted, even Mm. as it tries to critique caste. And so some of the scholarship that I've read about the history of caste is that that is a myth and an argument as much as it was ever the case um, for how caste was lived or experienced. And at different moments in Indian history, People have argued to change the place in the hierarchy of their caste, or they have had to mobilize around a different or a new caste identity because Hmm. of the way that the British um, created... um, different kinds of accommodations and quotas um, for representation in the oh, wow. terms of like uh, government that were given to Indians before independence. So um, so it would be really important to me to always say that caste is not fixed yeah. and that the arguments that we make about caste are also related to um, different kinds of politics. Oh, wow. And that reminds me a lot, actually, about the jurisprudence in the U.S. around who is black. Yes. Or white or Chinese, you know, for purposes of exclusion and um, just the way that these were also just political tools to be used by those in power. Yeah, totally. Um, So, like, I think one of the things... um, like caste, there's so many local varieties of caste and mm-hmm. caste identification in India, and it's that attempt to bring them into hierarchy often and as a all India system that yeah. applies uniformly everywhere that also kind of, you know, it kind of shows it's impossible in, in a way too. And I think having that openness about caste, even as we try to critique it, is also um, important. Wow. Can you, in closing, recommend a couple of good readings on on caste? Yeah, so um, the most famous history of caste is Nicholas Dirk's Casts of Mind. And Nicholas Dirks is a historian and anthropologist um, who studies... um, This book is about how the British... 
um, came to see India and Indian society as structured by caste mm. and the ways in which it depended on um, their kind of interlocutors and who they turned to to explain Indian society to them. And then the kind of consequences for their... So, and like, you know, the way that like Brahmins, for instance, made reference to these ancient texts to um, to say this is how caste is and the way that the British used the reference to the ancient texts to say, well, this is how caste is supposed to be and then how they instituted wow, yeah. that um, in, in through like the census and um, official anthropological surveys and everything. That's called casts of mind. Um, there are people who um, object to it and argue with it, <laughs> but I still think if, if you're looking for a history of how caste um, was kind of transformed under colonialism, it's a pretty good book. That sounds really good. And and anything from written from the Dalit perspective that you would recommend? Or on oh. the history of Dalit uprising or... Yeah, well, I think um, Ambedkar's uh, The Annihilation of Caste is, is totally a great read. B.R. Ambedkar was a really important figure in the Indian nationalist movement. Mm-hmm. And there were actually um, several anti-caste movements um, that um, occurred throughout India in the nationalist movement that were kind of challenging um, the Brahmanical um, tendencies of the Indian National Congress, which claimed to speak uh, for all Indians, but was really run by um, Brahmins and, and upper caste um, Hindus. And so Ambedkar's The Annihilation of Caste is both like an account of his experiences of caste and an argument against it, and it's so good. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate your time, and I always learn so much talking to you. Yeah, such a pleasure to talk with you. And why won't we ever know what happened with Vyasar and... um and <laughs> we have to wait for season two. Oh no. Desaparna ever find joy. <laughs> Thank you, Radhika. Thank you, Tammy. Ten days straight. What would you do for ten days? Why did you put the word relaxing in front of it? Can you relax? Not for me. I will talk to you never.